I'm Matt Miller of the Ditch That Textbook podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great educational podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest this week is Dr. Robert Dillon, an author, speaker, and director of innovation at the school district of University City near St. Louis, Missouri. Bob Dillon has 20-plus years of experience as a teacher, principal, technology director, and innovation leader with a focus on bringing synergy to instructional design, technology infusion, and reimagined learning space. Dr. Dillon is the co-founder of Connected Learning, a St. Louis nonprofit dedicated to affordable quality professional learning for teachers. He's the author of five books, including The Space, a guide for educators, and a great book from the Corwin Education Series entitled Redesigning Learning Spaces. He has a new book coming out later this year in 2020, The Space, A Guide for School Leaders, which continues his great research with co-author Rebecca Hare. If you have an interest in rethinking your school space or classroom design, then this episode is for you. So be sure to connect with Bob on Twitter at Robert Dillon and on the web at robertdillon.com. My conversation with Dr. Robert Dillon begins right now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Very excited to have an old friend of the podcast join us from St. Louis. Dr. Robert Dillon is a director of innovation. He's an author, he's a speaker, and he's a consultant on learning spaces and systems design. A very big welcome to Bob Dillon. How are you, Bob? Hey, good. It's great to be back, and uh, it's been a fun 2020 already for me, so it's uh, a lot, lot of good things going on here in St. Louis. I would think with the title Director of Innovation, there's always something to keep you hopping, right? Yeah, you know, and I think getting, I finally have a culture where people know that it's okay to try some stuff and tinker around and fail. And uh, it's really cool. It takes three or four years, but uh, we've got people doing all kinds of fun stuff that I just get to stand back and applaud. So that's kind of fun. You know, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. And of course, we've talked in the past, but. Um, you know, you've written several books. You have another one coming out here in 2020. We're going to talk about with Rebecca Hare, your co-author. But you're, the focus has really been on learning spaces for a while. But now you've also evolved talking more about system design. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of my own research of late with the podcast with things like design thinking, deeper learning, inquiry-based learning, passion-based learning, uh, just anything to get kids thinking about creativity and curiosity in the classroom. So what are your general thoughts about that movement and and kind of the things you're seeing in schools yeah really my sweet spot there is to look at kind of these legacy systems in school whether they're curriculum design or how we order technology or how we hire and start to really see how they're inhibitors on the system 
So I'm really looking deep into schools, like getting in their junk drawer, right? And saying like, why do you still have 75 years worth of student records that take 40 minutes every time a student needs this? We can get past that. So really trying to find all of these things that are gunk in systems and helping schools move past that. And really the other piece is beyond operations side is syncing together, like you said, the instructional piece, the learning space piece and the technology piece and helping folks kind of get all those systems in sync with each other. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I think uh, one of the most frustrating things for me, and I think you would agree in education is just how slowly things change. And we talk a lot about status quo and holding on to those old traditional models, but I've heard you talk about nostalgia as a trap. And you, you talk about those old mental models of what you think a school should look like. And everyone has been in a classroom, so everyone has in their mind, um, you know, what they think that should look like. And that continues to be an uphill battle today. Uh, but I love that, uh, that concept of nostalgia really can be a trap when we think about changing what schools look like. Yeah, there's two pieces of that too, right? Like there's schools that have been traditionally good. Community thinks they're good. People think they're good. They probably got a blue ribbon somewhere along the way. And all of a sudden, you know, we're good. So we don't need to evolve very fast. And then the world runs past you and you're trapped. Um, but the other piece of that nostalgia is really, we get caught measuring the wrong things sometimes. And we still have this huge hurdle to get over an ed of what are all of the things we're gonna measure as opposed to test scores. And just a few districts in the country are having really robust conversations about that. Some people might be talking about graduate portrait of a graduate, but really coming up with success metrics that everyone's on board uh, makes a big difference. And, you know, we do see schools that are, are, that are taking more risk and they're trying to do innovative things. And you see small pockets of that across the landscape, which I think is, is great momentum moving forward. But I also, um, you know, think about... The last time we talked, we talked a lot about makerspace and yeah. genius hour was really big. Hour of code was really big, but we've also fallen into this trap where we're only going to do makerspace in that design area for one hour. We're only going to do genius hour for one hour and we really have to change the culture. You talk about creating a maker culture, not a makerspace. Yeah, and for sure. I mean, I think that we have to get folks believing that their job is to help kids create, make and design. Uh, and that can be a whole bunch of things. You can create, make, and design ideas. You can create, make, and design projects. But we have to get folks out of just this consumption mode where teacher talks and students produce worksheets and papers that they're actually creating something that, um, as I really uh, liked the Loudoun County, Virginia superintendent said recently, um, their major goal was that kids contribute, right? Contribute to your community, contribute outside of your community, and so that's the culture, I think. That's the breakthrough. That's the verb we've been looking for around this work is how do we make sure whatever's happening in the classroom contributes to something larger. And when you think about this systems design piece, you know, obviously there's a lot of different things out there. You know, project-based learning has really kind of blown up. And, and I like to see that. But again, I don't know if you put all your eggs in that one basket. Whenever you talk with schools about systems design, how do you kind of break that down as what is the, the blueprint or the path to creating those better schools? Yeah, I think we start backwards, right? And that individualized or individual learning probably isn't 
a product of a system, right? Like you can be an individual learner, but the idea that everyone's going to have their own individual path and pace is exhausting on a system, especially where we are in this date and time. So we take that off the table, right? And I think that's important for educators is that, so what are we taking off the table? I do think that if you talk about paths and paces uh, as a way to kind of figure out where kids are going, we can, can we say, hey, should every one of our high school kids have to go through X prerequisites and these electives to have this many credits, or should we have multiple paths and paces? I think that's where we talk through and some communities are ready for more paths and paces, but I think we can all say, we're not gonna individualize for every kid. It's not gonna be standardized what can we do in our community right now and how can we keep pushing that to meet the needs of our kids? Cause I think so much of this is localized. Um, but you know, if we don't have four or five paths and paces for uh, our high school students, we are going to leave kids behind. And so oftentimes we're just trying to figure out what those are um, in that community. And I think we also need to think more about uh, different grade levels and different age groups of kids. I think too many times, if we talk about a district plan, what, what may work at the elementary building may not work at the high school building, especially when it comes to things like learning spaces. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, I, I was with a, a group of 80 high school teachers for PD the other day, and they certainly didn't want to hear about what a second grade classroom looked like. And so it gets really specific very quick. Uh, but the best schools have design principles that they're pursuing. It may not mean that everyone is doing the exact same thing, but hey, can we have less things in our room now uh, than we had six months ago? Hey, can we make sure that kids have access to more writable space? Can we give kids more room to move? I mean, those are three easy ones, right? That any school, high school, middle school, elementary school can say, you know what, the research does say that and I'm okay to work on that. I may not get it on day one, but I'm willing to work towards that. And so I love that when people start to do those types of things around learning spaces, the next question becomes, well, well what kind of design principles could we have around instruction? Or what kind of design principles could we have around using technology? Uh, oftentimes, learning spaces is an easy entry point uh, for schools. People like to talk about their learning environments. And, you know, one of the things that, that really kind of blew up and I saw people get excited about was this idea of flexible seating. And, in fact, that was one of the big things we talked about the last time I had you on. Um, but it, it's interesting, um, you know, just because you, you know, throw a few bean bags in the corner uh, doesn't change uh, what you're doing if you're still going to pass out worksheets. If kids are still doing worksheets on a beanbag, if the pedagogy doesn't change, then really nothing's changed. Yeah, and oftentimes flexible seating is a way to put something on your to-do list and check it off. And right, like I now have flexible seating, check. When really, when you're designing instruction, when you're learning about technology tools, when you're looking at space, it's an ongoing iterative process. And so uh, that's where flexible seating can actually get in the way is that it's about how do you iterate over time based on feedback from your students, knowing that you're going to have different students next semester, next quarter, next year, uh, and they're going to have some different needs. And so we're starting to see though um, how many choices we need, the right types of choices. And so now a lot of my work is how do I disseminate what's working around the country uh, as I'm working with school districts. And I really like uh, the last two years, I've had a chance to be with school districts over the course of the school year, a couple days each quarter, 
or you're in buildings, you're working with teachers, you're watching students, you're talking to students, really getting in the weeds of making sure we're optimizing those spaces. You know, going back to that nostalgia piece, I visit a lot of schools myself. And I mean, you can easily identify a school. You drive by it, you, you look at it, there it is. That's what a school looks like. And I think about school design uh, in the 21st century and, and what that looks like. And to me, it, it's always had this institutional type of feel, like being in a hospital, or I, I've even heard a, a correctional facility uh, as a comparison in the past. Um, at what point do you think in the school construction process, and you're starting to see this a little bit, but at what point are we going to design schools that work best for kids and not just that industrialized model that has always been around? Yeah, and we're starting to see it, uh, but it's also in a time and place where fear-based construction is heavy on people's hearts, right? When we have people worried about safety and security, rightfully so, uh, how big can we make the shift in de-industrializing the learning space? And so I think it's tricky, uh, but I am seeing some designers and some architects and some planners find a sweet spot there where they're able to provide much more flexibility, but provide some safety and security. Uh, there's a school in Indiana that's boasting that they're the safest school in the country and they all these things that they have, right? And I just wonder like, do kids like to be there? And you know, that has to be right up there at the top of the list uh, because beautiful spaces inspire. And when kids feel like they have a sense of belonging and ownership in a place, their engagement and their joy goes up. And you know, we're in a day and place where kids' stress and anxiety is through the roof. And we've got to have spaces that de-escalate that. And we've got to be really thoughtful about the micro and the macro planning around that. So it's been a lot of fun. And I think that this, continue, this won't be a short conversation. This isn't a fad around learning spaces. We're going to be talking about learning environments, especially as instruction changes as well. And, you know, I've, I've worked in schools, I've been in schools where they don't have another nook or cranny to put a student. I mean, they're just completely overcrowded. And the flip side of that is I've been in a lot of new schools where there's just so much underutilized space. You know, you have the large double barrel hallways, you have the extra large commons area. And uh, again, I just think it's a kind of a mindset within school construction that a, a school has to be so many square feet, it has to have this kind of space that kind of space. I tell people all the time, if I was a principal today, I wouldn't invest another dime into a traditional computer lab uh, yeah. because it's just unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we are, I learned the other day in the state of Wisconsin that they, uh, school asked for a rethink of their restrooms, right? A lot of folks are talking about general neutral uh, gender neutral bathrooms or bathrooms where kids feel belong and safe, that sort of thing. The actual building code in Wisconsin doesn't have language that allows for that type of bathroom. So we have these weird structural barriers, just like you said, about like things that people just can't get past because of building code that we need to really start to have a larger conversation about things like building code as it relates to the things we need to do to serve kids. And I, I think that was an eye opener for me to think that, you know, we have to think even bigger about the structural barriers are getting in the way. And you know, the nostalgia piece, I wanna go back to that as well. Um, schools have to do a better job of showcasing what modern learning looks like in their building. Because people are driving by a building 
and they have a gut feeling of what's going on on the inside, we have to be overboard about showing that through video and images of what modern learning looks like. I go into way too many schools and man, I, can, I, I don't see pictures of kids doing the work anywhere in the hallways or the office. And uh, that's one area that I wish schools would just really double down on is getting images of kids doing the work as many places as possible uh, so people can really see what modern learning really means. And when you talk about modern learning, the thing that pops into my head automatically would be student-centered classrooms. You know, the, the old model that's teacher-directed, command and control, uh, the, the adults in the building are going to be in charge is the old model. As we think about student-centered classrooms, and this is probably a, a tough question to answer, but in your mind, when you hear that term student-centered classroom, what does that look like exactly, and, and how do you create conditions for that? Yeah, I think two things I'm looking for, or three things really, when there's a student-centered classroom, oftentimes the classroom bleeds out into common spaces, into hallways. You see when you walk into schools that like kids are all over the place learning, that you know something's right happening inside the classroom. But also that kids know where they learn what best. And we've taught them from kindergarten on up, like, hey, I like to read here, and I've tested five different spots in the room, but I know this is my spot for that. Hey, I know where I write best, and I know how I discuss best. And like, if we teach kids where they learn what best, that pushes us to the conditions we need for student-centered classroom. And then the other piece is, do we have norms around how to use all the spaces in the classroom? We can't just say, hey, go collaborate over there. We've actually got to teach kids what that means. Hey, that's a space to be quiet over there. Well, what's that mean to be quiet? I know it seems like we should be intuitive around that. Best classrooms, though, spilling out, teach kids where they learn what best, and they have the norms of all these different microspaces. And then you can approach the right conditions, I think. My guest today is Dr. Robert Dillon. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Robert Dillon. Also the website of the same name at drrobertdillon.com. You want to follow him. He has some great resources and videos. And we're going to talk about a couple of his books and the book he's working on uh, for 2020 here in just a few minutes. But, you know, Bob, the thing that I've always admired about your work is whenever you go out and speak and you're very passionate about both learning space and system design, but it's not just this is what Bob Dillon thinks you really use a lot of research in, uh, you know, spe especially brain research, talking about learning spaces and how to set up these systems. And I think it's important. I mean, it's definitely not the gospel according to Bob. Like my job is to go find the best stuff and share it. Uh, I'm a curator by nature. Uh, I input a lot of information on a daily basis. And I know that teachers and leaders don't get a chance to visit as many places or see best practices as often as I do. So I see it as my responsibility to share those out and make sure that people have that. And then also I've just been a, a keen um, observer of the work happening in both Australia and New Zealand. They're about a decade ahead of us on this. And it's really nice to start seeing, hey, after 10 years, what can happen? Uh, that allows me to hold the torch, but it also reminds folks that, hey, there are six or seven big rocks around the research here that we can pursue. And one of the research pieces is very clear that learning space design does not directly impact test scores. And so that creates a dilemma for some people if they don't have other metrics they're pursuing. And, you know, we talk a lot, or I do on the podcast about uh, digital natives. Now we're talking about Gen Z and, you know, they process things differently. And so you even talk about 
um, you know, light, color, and sound as, as being factors in how you're going to set up better learning conditions for modern education? Yeah, they're definitely making a difference. We just saw a great study come out the other day about air quality as well. Uh, they put some air filters in somewhere and they saw rises in test scores and those sort of things. So we know that those make a difference. Sometimes I worry that teachers listening to the podcast are saying, you know, that's my control, man. I can't put in new lights. I can't put in new sound. I can't do that. But when you can control those items, you should. And so, you know, if you can get your mini blinds up and give kids a better look at natural lighting and nature, do that. If you can do some things to make sure that kids in the back of the room can hear when it comes to speakers or on your visual display or your computer, helping with that. You know, I was just reminded the other day by friends that like, hey, when you go to present, you got to wear that microphone, you know, and so places that have voice amplification, you can't say, oh, I've got a big voice, you'll be able to hear me. Uh, lots of folks can't hear different decibel ranges. And if we're just aware of those things as educators, when we can control them, we're making an effort to do that, I think goes a long way. But yeah, those are core uh, to the work. And now we're learning more and more about biophilic design that says, hey, as the colors of your classroom, as the images of your classroom are more nature-based, they're impacting students in a positive way around stress and anxiety. And so trying to get more of that type of color into classrooms has been uh, a part of the work too. You referenced New Zealand and I think another country as, as, as places that are really starting to uh, have an impact in changing design. Can you give us some examples of how those places would look different than what we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis here in our country? Yeah, I think the, the, the natural light piece in their design goes way up. Um, and I think that folks have said that's a, that's a big piece of that puzzle. I think if you go into those places, there are less uh, confined spaces, like, hey, this is the only space. There's a lot more bleed out into common spaces, into smaller breakout rooms. So you might have nine classrooms with a lot of different spaces that people can break out into. Uh, doing a project up in uh, Westchester County in New York where they just took a, a row of uh, classrooms and turned them into a big kind of open space, but not making the same mistakes that we had with the open classroom, right? And so I'm not advocating for open classroom space where the acoustics are awful, uh, but we can design things that feel open and there's airflow through them and we can see sight lines. And so uh, I think you would see all of those things and you would see kids empowered and if you ask kids why they were sitting somewhere, uh, they know why. And so they've really gotten uh, the, into the DNA why they're doing the work. It's not about cute and neat and fancy there. It's really about um, making the world a better place for our learners. You know, you're the author of, a, I think, a handful of books now, and you have the new one coming out in 2020. But two of my favorites are uh, Redesigning Learning Space, which you collaborated with some folks on that, A.J. Giuliani, Aaron Klein, to name a few. I think Ben Gilpin was the other one. And then you, uh, the uh, co-author of The Space, A Guide for Educators with Rebecca Hare. Now, you're getting ready to release in 2020 uh, the second part of Space, which would be the guide for school leaders. Can you talk about why you wanted to kind of continue that that series of books? Yeah, you know, we heard from teachers and we've worked with a lot of teachers over the last few years that, hey, we get this in our classroom, but unless this becomes a building level initiative, it's not going to have the multiplier effect that it could. And so we took that nugget that we learned from teachers and started to say, you know, how do we build a culture in a school that really promotes learning space design? 
how do we lay out the research in a way that um, principal can make uh, justification for the work? You know, then how can we do some things that hack these spaces, like the outside of the building, the entryway, the office, all of these things that make first impressions on parents and families and kids? You know, then how can we think about things like bathrooms and libraries and common spaces? So we're really digging into the heart of the building while we're still talking about the classroom in some sense there, but it really is an opportunity for a building to feel different and be different and lose that institutionalization you talked about before. And, you know, uh, we talk a lot about the student-centered concept, and sometimes that's going to look a little messy. It's going to get a little loud, and, and that's okay. I, I think uh, that's the direction we need to go. But I was watching one of the videos that you put out on your YouTube page uh, with the book, um, you know, Space, A Guide for Educators, and you were talking about this idea that we have to also have quiet spaces because we need a quiet space to reflect. And that's something that completely got by me as we're thinking about project-based learning, kids up moving around, kids collaborating. But I, I was fascinated by that idea that we need to really rethink quiet spaces as well. Yeah, and you know, sometimes they say quiet space and sometimes that's quiet time, right? Time and space fit together. Um, and we don't do that well as adults to take time to reflect. Uh, and I think that sometimes because we don't do that well as adults, we don't bring that into our classroom space. Where do we make 90 seconds for kids to make the learning sticky? Hey, take three things that you just learned, make sure that you're going to remember one of those a week from now. And so um, if we don't have either the conditions for quiet, and those are small chunks of time, but the environment really reinforces that. Uh, so this isn't just about a kid who's in crisis or needs to be in the calm down space. Uh, universally, we need quiet space and time. And so helping teachers uh, create those conditions, uh, you know, you can change the lighting, you can change the position of the desks when you have flexible furniture, and you can create kind of a micro space in your room where the norms are. If I go back there, I'm gonna get some time and space to do what I need to do. And uh, it really does help our introverts as well. We're such an extrovert-oriented learning system that um, if you really want to dig deep and help all learners, you've got to create time for our introverts as well. And I think that's just a, you know, a great concept that we need to start thinking more and more about. Um, you know, you've had a long and distinguished career in education. You've been a teacher, obviously. You've been a principal. Now moving into your role, or you've been in the role for quite some time as a director of innovation. I know that this is your final year. You're getting ready to retire. So as you reflect on all the years of working with kids and adults, what are, what are two or three things that you're really going to take with you in retirement that you're most proud of? Yeah, I, you know, one is that uh, there were some really difficult kids as an assistant principal in middle school and, um, and middle school principal that I just feel like I, you know, I pat myself a little bit on the back of saying I didn't give up on those kids, that I was really able to say when I went home every night, we're going to start over fresh in the morning. And I think that helped me as a middle school administrator. Uh, the second is I've always been an advocate for outdoor learning and getting place-based learning, getting kids into their community. And um, I'll continue to ring that bell, but really love the fact that I built up a program that allowed for that to happen that my daughters have gone through as well. Uh, I, would, I would hang it on uh, any middle school programming in the country. And uh, I really love that opportunity. And then this director of innovation piece has been so wonderful to see 
teacher after teacher reignite their career. Uh, I've had folks that have been burned out, didn't have an advocate, didn't have a champion, and I've been able to step into that role and kind of uh, really help some teachers uh, go from burned out to kind of revisioning um, their impact on kids. So it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, the journey's just beginning. This is just the close of another door. So. And I know you're probably going to be out speaking and continue to write and do a lot of the research that you're passionate about. And, uh, you know, the person that's going to replace you, I feel sorry for that person because they're going to have some huge shoes to fill. Yeah. And, you know, I've hopefully set up the system, right? Going back to systems, I've hopefully designed the system to at some level run itself in a much more efficient way. And so I'm hopefully paving the way for him to do that work. And, you know, what I'm really looking forward to doing is finding, you know, a few districts, maybe 10 districts a year to really go deep around the work with. And so that's what I really want to do. I know there's some people that love to go off and do a one day workshop or do a one day presentation. Uh, my heart's in going deep with folks, uh, whether that's a school or a district. And uh, uh, it's, those are starting to line up to a point where uh, you can't do everything as a single person anymore. I can't figure out how to clone myself. So uh, I, uh, for now, I'm going to do those big projects and really love it. Well, again, I can't thank you enough for being here. It was wonderful to catch up with you. I wish you nothing but the best as you wrap up the school year and and move into this next stage of uh, retirement or semi-retirement, if I could say. Um, You know, I want to give you a closing thought as we wrap it up. We have a lot of superintendents, principals, obviously teachers listening to the podcast, and maybe they're excited now for the first time about learning space and system design. The big question you probably get, I get a lot, is, you know, where do we start? Where do we jump in and, and get this thing rolling? Yeah, it's got to just be action-oriented, right? We can't keep talking about it. And one of the things that I love to do with teachers is like, let's find 10 things to get out of your room. If we can bake, break the momentum, break the tradition, break the inertia, uh, it gets us going. And then if we can think deeply about what are the verbs of your classroom, and each individual classroom has individual verbs, discuss and collaborate and analyze and we know what those are we can do excellent things in designing instruction finding technology tools and finding the right learning environment to support those verbs and we can do those two things we're off to a really good start well always a great conversation bob and again thanks for being here i really appreciate it uh, thanks appreciate it folks that was dr robert dylan if you want to connect with him you can find him on twitter at dr robert dylan also the website of the same name drrobertdillon.com Uh, connect with him. He would love to share some great ideas with you. So that's a wrap for this episode, folks. And as always, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.